Chapter Six of Mrs. Dalloway. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf. Chapter Six. No, no, no. He was not in love with her any more. He only felt, after seeing her that morning among her scissors and silks making ready for the party unable to get away from the thought of her she kept coming back and back like a sleeper jolting against him in a railway carriage which was not being in love of course it was thinking of her criticizing her starting again after thirty years trying to explain her the obvious thing to say of her was that she was worldly cared too much for rank and society and getting on in the world which was true in a sense she had admitted it to him you could always get her to own up if you took the trouble she was honest what she would say was that she hated frumps bogies failures like himself presumably thought people had no right to slouch about with their hands in their pockets must do something be something and these great swells these duchesses these hoary old countesses one met in her drawing-room unspeakably remote as he felt them to be from anything that mattered a straw stood for something real to her lady bexborough she said once held herself upright so did clarissa herself she never lounged in any sense of the word she was straight as a dart a little rigid in fact she said they had a kind of courage which the older she grew the more she respected in all this there was a great deal of dalloway of course a great deal of the public-spirited british empire tariff reform governing class spirit which had grown on her as it tends to do with twice his wits she had to see things through his eyes one of the tragedies of married life with a mind of her own she must always be quoting richard as if one couldn't know to a tittle what richard thought by reading the morning post of a morning these parties for example were all for him or for her idea of him to do richard justice he would have been happier farming in norfolk she made her drawing-room a sort of meeting-place she had a genius for it over and over again he had seen her take some raw youth twist him turn him wake him up set him going infinite numbers of dull people conglomerated round her of course but odd and expected people turned up an artist sometimes sometimes a writer queer fish in that atmosphere and behind it all was that network of visiting leaving cards being kind to people running about with bunches of flowers little presents so and so was going to france must have an air cushion a real drain on her strength all that interminable traffic that women of her sort keep up but she did it genuinely from a natural instinct oddly enough she was one of the most thorough-going skeptics he had ever met and possibly this was a theory he used to make up to account for her so transparent in some ways so inscrutable in others possibly she said to herself as we are a doomed race chained to a sinking ship her favorite reading as a girl was Huxley and Tyndall, and they were fond of these nautical metaphors. As the whole thing is a bad joke, let us, at any rate, do our part, mitigate the sufferings of our fellow prisoners, Huxley again, 
decorate the dungeons with flowers and air cushions be as decent as we possibly can those ruffians the gods shan't have it all their own way her notion being that the gods who never lost a chance of hurting thwarting and spoiling human lives were seriously put out if all the same you behaved like a lady that phase came directly after sylvia's death that horrible affair to see your own sister killed by a falling tree all just in perry's fault all his carelessness before your very eyes a girl too on the verge of life the most gifted of them clarissa always said was enough to turn one bitter later she wasn't so positive perhaps she thought there were no gods no one was to blame and so she evolved this atheist's religion of doing good for the sake of goodness and of course she enjoyed life immensely it was her nature to enjoy though goodness only knows she had her reserves it was a mere sketch he often felt that even he after all these years could make of clarissa anyhow there was no bitterness in her none of that sense of moral virtue which is so repulsive in good women she enjoyed practically everything if you walked with her in hyde park now it was a bed of tulips now a child in a perambulator now some absurd little drama she made up on the spur of the moment very likely she would have talked to those lovers if she had thought them unhappy she had a sense of comedy that was really exquisite but she needed people always people to bring it out with the inevitable result that she frittered her time away lunching dining giving these incessant parties of hers talking nonsense saying things she didn't mean blunting the edge of her mind losing her discrimination there she would sit at the head of the table taking infinite pains with some old buffer who might be useful to dalloway they knew the most appalling bores in europe or in came elizabeth and everything must give way to her she was at a high school at the inarticulate stage last time he was over a round-eyed pale-faced girl with nothing of her mother in her a silent stolid creature who took it all as a matter of course let her mother make a fuss of her and then said may i go now like a child of four going off clarissa explained with that mixture of amusement and pride which dalloway himself seemed to rouse in her to play hockey and now elizabeth was out presumably thought him an old fogey laughed at her mother's friends ah well so be it the compensation of growing old peter walsh thought coming out of regent's park and holding his hat in hand was simply this that the passions remain as strong as ever but one has gained at last the power which adds the supreme flavor to existence the power of taking hold of experience of turning it round slowly in the light a terrible confession it was he put his hat on again but now at the age of fifty-three one scarcely needed people any more life itself every moment of it every drop of it here this instant now in the sun in regent's park was enough too much indeed a whole lifetime was too short to bring out now that one had acquired the power the full flavor to extract every ounce of pleasure every shade of meaning which both were so much more solid than they used to be so much less personal it was impossible that he should ever suffer again as clarissa had made him suffer for hours at a time 
pray god that one might say these things without being overheard for hours and days he never thought of daisy could it be that he was in love with her then remembering the misery the torture the extraordinary passion of those days it was a different thing altogether a much pleasanter thing the truth being of course that now she was in love with him and that perhaps was the reason why when the ship actually sailed he felt an extraordinary relief wanting nothing so much as to be alone was annoyed to find all her little attentions cigars notes a rug for the voyage in his cabin every one if they were honest would say the same one doesn't want people after fifty one doesn't want to go on telling women they are pretty that's what most men of fifty would say peter walsh thought if they were honest but then these astonishing accesses of emotion bursting into tears this morning what was all that about what could clarissa have thought of him thought him a fool presumably not for the first time it was jealousy that was at the bottom of it jealousy which survives every other passion of mankind peter walsh thought holding his pocket-knife at arm's length she had been meeting major ord daisy said in her last letter said it on purpose he knew said it to make him jealous he could see her wrinkling her forehead as she wrote wondering what she could say to hurt him and yet it made no difference he was furious all this pother of coming to england and seeing lawyers wasn't to marry her but to prevent her from marrying anybody else that was what tortured him that was what came over him when he saw clarissa so calm so cold so intent on her dress or whatever it was realizing what she might have spared him what she had reduced him to a whimpering sniveling old ass but woman he thought shutting his pocket knife don't know what passion is they don't know the meaning of it to men clarissa was as cold as any icicle there she would sit on the sofa by his side let him take her hand give him one kiss here he was at the crossing a sound interrupted him a frail quivering sound a voice bubbling up without direction vigor beginning or end running weakly and shrilly and with an absence of all human meaning into e um ba um so the voice of no age or sex the voice of an ancient spring spouting from the earth which issued just opposite regent's park tube station from a tall quivering shape like a funnel like a rusty pump like a wind-beaten tree forever barren of leaves which lets the wind run up and down its branches singing e um fa um so and rocks and creeks and moans in the eternal breeze through all ages when the pavement was grass when it was swamp through the age of tusk and mammoth through the age of silent sunrise the battered woman for she wore a skirt with her right hand exposed her left clutching at her side stood singing of love love which has lasted a million years she sang love which prevails and millions of years ago her lover who had been dead these centuries had walked she crooned with her in may but in the course of ages long as summer days and flaming she remembered with nothing but red asters he had gone death's enormous sickle had swept those tremendous hills and when at last she laid her hoary and immensely aged head on the earth 
now become a mere cinder of ice she implored the gods to lay her side a bunch of purple heather there on her high burial place which the last rays of the last sun caressed for then the pageant of the universe would be over as the ancient song bubbled up opposite regent's park tube station still the earth seemed green and flowery still though it issued from so rude a mouth a mere hole in the earth muddy too matted with root fibres and tangled grasses still the old bubbling burbling song soaking through the knotted roots of infinite ages and skeletons and treasure streamed away in rivulets over the pavement and all along the merry laybone road and down towards euston fertilizing leaving a damp stain still remembering how once in some primeval may she had walked with her lover this rusty pump this battered old woman with one hand exposed for coppers the other clutching her side would still be there in ten million years remembering how once she had walked in may where the sea flows now with whom it did not matter he was a man oh yes a man who had loved her but the passage of ages had blurred the clarity of that ancient may day the bright petalled flowers were hoar and silver frosted and she no longer saw when she implored him as she did now quite clearly look in my eyes with thy sweet eyes intently she no longer saw brown eyes black whiskers or sunburnt face but only a looming shape a shadow shape to which with the bird-like freshness of the very aged she still twittered give me your hand and let me press it gently peter walsh couldn't help giving the poor creature a coin as he stepped into his taxi and if someone should see what matter they she demanded and her fist clutched at her side and she smiled pocketing her shilling and all peering inquisitive eyes seemed blotted out and the passing generations the pavement was crowded with bustling middle-class people vanished like leaves to be trodden under to be soaked and steeped and made mould of by that eternal spring e um ba um so who sweet to im o poor old woman said rezia warren smith waiting to cross oh poor old wretch suppose it was a wet night suppose one's father or somebody who had known one in better days had happened to pass and saw one standing there in the gutter and where did she sleep at night cheerfully almost gaily the invincible thread of sound wound up into the air like the smoke from a cottage chimney winding up clean beech trees and issuing in a tuft of blue smoke among the topmost leaves and if some one should see what matter they since she was so unhappy for weeks and weeks now Razia had given meanings to things that happened almost felt sometimes that she must stop people in the street if they looked good kind people just to say to them i am unhappy and this old woman singing in the street if some one should see what matter they made her suddenly quite sure that everything was going to be right they were going to sir william bradshaw she thought his name sounded nice he would cure septimus at once and then there was a brewer's cart and the grey horses had upright bristles of straw in their tails there were newspaper placards it was a silly silly dream being unhappy so they crossed 
mr and mrs septimus warren smith and was there after all anything to draw attention to them anything to make a passer-by suspect here is a young man who carries in him the greatest message in the world and is moreover the happiest man in the world and the most miserable perhaps they walked more slowly than other people and there was something hesitating trailing in the man's walk but what more natural for a clerk who has not been in the west end on a weekday at this hour for years than to keep looking at the sky looking at this that and the other as if portland place were a room he had come into when the family are away the chandeliers being hung in holland bags and the caretaker as she lets in long shafts of dusty light upon deserted queer-looking armchairs lifting one corner of the long blinds explains to the visitors what a wonderful place it is how wonderful but at the same time he thinks as he looks at chairs and tables how strange to look at he might have been a clerk but of the better sort for he wore brown boots his hands were educated so too his profile his angular big-nosed intelligent sensitive profile but not his lips altogether for they were loose and his eyes as eyes tend to be eyes merely hazel large so that he was on the whole a border case neither one thing nor the other might end with a house at purley and a motor-car or continue renting apartments in back streets all his life one of those half-educated self-educated men whose education is all learnt from books borrowed from public libraries reading in the evening after the day's work on the advice of well-known authors consulted by letter as for the other experiences the solitary ones which people go through alone in their bedrooms in their offices walking the fields and the streets of london he had them had left home a mere boy because of his mother she lied because he came down to tea for the fiftieth time with his hands unwashed because he could see no future for a poet in stroud and so making a confidant of his little sister had gone to london leaving an absurd note behind him such as great men have written and the world has read later when the story of their struggles has become famous london has swallowed up many millions of young men called smith thought nothing of fantastic christian names like septimus with which their parents have thought to distinguish them lodging off the euston road there were experiences again experiences such as change a face in two years from a pink innocent oval to a face lean contracted hostile but of all this what could the most observant of friends have said except what a gardener says when he opens the conservatory door in the morning and finds a new blossom on his plant it has flowered flowered from vanity ambition idealism passion loneliness courage laziness the usual seeds which all muddled up in a room off the euston road made him shy and stammering made him anxious to improve himself made him fall in love with miss isabel pole lecturing in the waterloo road upon shakespeare was he not like keats she asked and reflected how she might give him a taste of antony and cleopatra and the rest lent him books wrote him scraps of letters and lit in him such a fire as burns only once in a lifetime 
without heat flickering a red-gold flame infinitely ethereal and insubstantial over miss pole antony and cleopatra and the waterloo road he thought her beautiful believed her impeccably wise dreamed of her wrote poems to her which ignoring the subject she corrected in red ink he saw her one summer evening walking in a green dress in a square it has flowered the gardener might have said had he opened the door had he come in that is to say any night about this time and found him writing found him tearing up his writing found him finishing a masterpiece at three o'clock in the morning and running out to pace the streets and visiting churches and fasting one day drinking another devouring shakespeare darwin the history of civilization and bernard shaw something was up mr brewer knew mr brewer managing clerk at sibley's and aerosmith's auctioneers valuers land and estate agents something was up he thought and being paternal with his young men and thinking very highly of smith's abilities and prophesying that he would in ten or fifteen years succeed to the leather armchair in the inner room under the skylight with the deed boxes round him if he keeps his health said mr brewer and that was the danger he looked weakly advised football invited him to supper and was seeing his way to consider recommending a rise of salary when something happened which threw out many of mr brewer's calculations took away his ablest young fellows and eventually so prying and insidious were the fingers of the european war smashed a plaster cast of series ploughed a hoe in the geranium beds and utterly ruined the cook's nerves at mr brewer's establishment at muswell hill septimus was one of the first to volunteer he went to france to save in england which consisted almost entirely of shakespeare's plays and miss isabel pole in a green dress walking in a square there in the trenches the change which mr brewer desired when he advised football was produced instantly he developed manliness he was promoted he drew the attention indeed the affection of his officer evans by name it was a case of two dogs playing on a hearth-rug one worrying a paper screw snarling snapping giving a pinch now and then at the old dog's ear the other lying somnolent blinking at the fire raising a paw turning and growling good-temperedly they had to be together share with each other fight with each other quarrel with each other but when evans rezia who had only seen him once called him a quiet man a sturdy red-haired man undemonstrative in the company of women when evans was killed just before the armistice in italy septimus far from showing any emotion or recognizing that here was the end of a friendship congratulated himself upon feeling very little and very reasonably the war had taught him it was sublime he had gone through the whole show friendship european war death had won promotion was still under thirty and was bound to survive he was right there the last shells missed him he watched them explode with indifference when peace came he was in milan billeted in the house of an innkeeper with a courtyard flowers in tubs little tables in the open daughters making hats and to lucrezia the younger daughter he became engaged one evening when the panic was on him that he could not feel 
for now that it was all over truce signed and the dead buried he had especially in the evening these sudden thunderclaps of fear he could not feel as he opened the door of the room where the italian girls sat making hats he could see them could hear them they were rubbing wires among colored beads in saucers they were turning buckram shapes this way and that the table was all strewn with feathers spangles silks ribbons scissors were rapping on the table but something failed him he could not feel still scissors rapping girls laughing hats being made protected him he was assured of safety he had a refuge but he could not sit there all night there were moments of waking in the early morning the bed was falling he was falling oh for the scissors and the lamplight and the buckram shapes he asked lucrezia to marry him the younger of the two the gay the frivolous with those little artist's fingers that she would hold up and say it is all in them silk feathers what not were alive to them it is the hat that matters most she would say when they walked out together every hat that passed she would examine and the cloak and the dress and the way the woman held herself ill-dressing over-dressing she stigmatized not savagely rather with impatient movements of the hands like those of a painter who puts from him some obvious well-meant glaring imposture and then generously but always critically she would welcome a shop-girl who had turned her little bit of stuff gallantly or praise wholly with enthusiastic and professional understanding a french lady descending from her carriage in chinchilla robes pearls beautiful she would murmur nudging septimus that he might see but beauty was behind a pane of glass even taste rezia liked ices chocolates sweet things had no relish to him he put down his cup on the little marble table he looked at people outside happy they seemed collecting in the middle of the street shouting laughing squabbling over nothing but he could not taste he could not feel in the tea-shop among the tables and the chattering waiters the appalling fear came over him he could not feel he could reason he could read dante for example quite easily septimus do put down your book said razia gently shutting the inferno he could add up his bill his brain was perfect it must be the fault of the world then that he could not feel the english are so silent razia said she liked it she said she respected those englishmen and wanted to see london and the english horses and the tailor-made suits and could remember hearing how wonderful the shops were from an aunt who had married and lived in soho it might be possible septimus thought looking at england from the train window as they left new haven it might be possible that the world itself is without meaning at the office they advanced him to a post of considerable responsibility they were proud of him he had won crosses you have done your duty it is up to us began mr brewer and could not finish so pleasurable was his emotion they took admirable lodgings of the tottenham court road here he opened shakespeare once more that boy's business of the intoxication of language antony and cleopatra had shrivelled utterly how shakespeare loathed humanity the putting on of clothes the getting of children the sordidity of the mouth and the belly 
This was now revealed to Septimus, the message hidden in the beauty of words, the secret signal which one generation passes, under disguise, to the next is loathing, hatred, despair. Dante the same, Aeschylus the same. There Razia sat at the table trimming hats. She trimmed hats for Mrs. Filmer's friends. She trimmed hats by the hour. She looked pale, mysterious, like a lily, drowned under water, he thought. The English are so serious, she would say, putting her arms round Septimus, her cheek against his. Love between man and woman was repulsive to Shakespeare. The business of copulation was filth to him before the end. But Razia said she must have children. They had been married five years. They went to the tower together, to the Victoria and Albert Museum, stood in the crowd to see the King open Parliament, and there were the shops, hat shops, dress shops, shops with leather bags in the window, where she would stand staring. But she must have a boy. She must have a son like Septimus, she said. But nobody could be like Septimus, so gentle, so serious, so clever. Could she not read Shakespeare, too? Was Shakespeare a difficult author, she asked? One cannot bring children into a world like this. One cannot perpetuate suffering, or increase the breed of these lustful animals who have no lasting emotions, but only whims and vanities, eddying them now this way, now that. He watched her snip, shape, as one watches a bird hop, flit in the grass, without daring to move a finger. For the truth is, let her ignore it, that human beings have neither kindness, nor faith, nor charity beyond what serves to increase the pleasure of the moment. They hunt in packs. Their packs scour the desert and vanish screaming into the wilderness. They desert the fallen. They are plastered over with grimaces. There was Brewer at the office, with his waxed moustache, coral tie-pin, white slip, and pleasurable emotions all coldness and clamminess within, his geraniums ruined in the war, his cook's nerves destroyed, or Amelia what's-her-name, handing round cups of tea punctually at five, a leering, sneering, obscene little happy, and the toms and the birdies in their starched shirt-fronts oozing thick drops of vice. They never saw him drawing pictures of them naked at their antics in his notebook. In the street, Bands roared past him. Brutality blared out on placards. Men were trapped in mines, women burnt alive, and once a maimed file of lunatics being exercised or displayed for the diversion of the populace, who laughed aloud, ambled and nodded and grinned past him, in the Tottenham Court Road, each half apologetically, yet triumphantly inflicting his hopeless woe. And would he go mad? At tea, Rezia told him that Mrs. Filmer's daughter was expecting a baby. She could not grow old and have no children. She was very lonely. She was very unhappy. She cried for the first time since they were married. Far away, he heard her sobbing. He heard it accurately. He noticed it distinctly. He compared it to a piston thumping. But he felt nothing. His wife was crying, and he felt nothing. Only each time she sobbed in this profound, this silent, this hopeless way, he descended another step into the pit. At last, with a melodramatic gesture which he assumed mechanically, and with complete consciousness of its insincerity, 
he dropped his head on his hands. Now he had surrendered. Now other people must help him. People must be sent for. He gave in. Nothing could rouse him. Razia put him to bed. She sent for a doctor, Mrs. Filmer's Dr. Holmes. Dr. Holmes examined him. There was nothing whatever the matter, said Dr. Holmes. Oh, what a relief! What a kind man! What a good man! thought Razia. When he felt like that, he went to the music hall, said Dr. Holmes. He took a day off with his wife and played golf. Why not try two tabloids of bromide dissolved in a glass of water at bedtime? These old Bloomsbury houses, said Dr. Holmes, tapping the wall, are often full of very fine paneling, which the landlords have the folly to paper over. Only the other day, visiting a patient, Sir Somebody Something in Bedford Square. So there was no excuse, nothing whatever the matter, except the sin for which human nature had condemned him to death, that he did not feel. He had not cared when Evans was killed. That was worst. But all the other crimes raised their heads and shook their fingers, and jeered and sneered over the rail of the bed in the early hours of the morning at the prostrate body which lay realizing its degradation. How he had married his wife without loving her, had lied to her, seduced her, outraged Miss Isabel Pole, and was so pocked and marked with vice that women shuddered when they saw him in the street. The verdict of human nature on such a wretch was death. Dr. Holmes came again, large, fresh-colored, handsome, licking his boots, looking in the glass, he brushed it all aside. Headaches, sleeplessness, fears, dreams, nerve symptoms, and nothing more, he said. If Dr. Holmes found himself even half a pound below eleven stone six, he asked his wife for another plate of porridge at breakfast. Razia would learn to cook porridge. But he continued, health is largely a matter in our own control. Throw yourself into outside interests. Take up some hobby. He opened Shakespeare. Antony and Cleopatra pushed Shakespeare aside. Some hobby, said Dr. Holmes, for did he not owe his own excellent health, and he worked as hard as any man in London, to the fact that he could always switch off from his patients onto old furniture? And what a very pretty comb, if he might say so, Mrs. Warren Smith was wearing. When the damned fool came again, Septimus refused to see him. Did he indeed, said Dr. Holmes, smiling agreeably? Really, he had to give that charming little lady, Mrs. Smith, a friendly push before he could get past her into her husband's bedroom. So you're in a funk, he said agreeably, sitting down by his patient's side. He had actually talked of killing himself to his wife. Quite a girl, a foreigner, wasn't she? Didn't that give her a very odd idea of English husbands? Didn't one owe, perhaps, a duty to one's wife? Would it be better to do something instead of lying in bed? for he had had forty years' experience behind him, and Septimus could take Dr. Holmes's word for it. There was nothing whatever the matter with him, and next time Dr. Holmes came, he hoped to find Smith out of bed and not making that charming little lady his wife anxious about him. Human nature, in short, was on him, the repulsive brute, with the blood-red nostrils. Holmes was on him, Dr. Holmes came quite regularly every day. Once you stumble, Septimus wrote on the back of a postcard, Human nature is on you. Holmes is on you. Their only chance was to escape, 
without letting Holmes know, to Italy, anywhere, anywhere, away from Dr. Holmes. But Razia could not understand him. Dr. Holmes was such a kind man. He was so interested in Septimus. He only wanted to help them, he said. He had four little children, and he had asked her to tea, she told Septimus. So he was deserted. The whole world was clamoring, kill yourself, kill yourself, for our sakes. But why should he kill himself for their sakes? Food was pleasant, the sun hot, and this killing oneself. How does one set about it, with a table knife, uglily, with floods of blood, by sucking a gas pipe? He was too weak. He could scarcely raise his hand. Besides, now that he was quite alone, condemned, deserted, as those who are about to die are alone, there was a luxury in it, an isolation full of sublimity, a freedom which the attached can never know. Holmes had won, of course. The brute with the red nostrils had won. But even Holmes himself could not touch this last relic straying on the edge of the world, this outcast who gazed back at the inhabited regions, who lay, like a drowned sailor, on the shore of the world. It was at that moment, Razia gone shopping, that the great revelation took place. A voice spoke from behind the screen. Evans was speaking. The dead were with him. End of chapter 6